realize, you know, in your early years, you're so afraid of offending someone or, or uh, of trying anything unusual. And, and after a few years, you don't worry about it as much. And you realize that uh, not everyone can love you, but uh, you just do what is yourself. Welcome back to Beyond High Street, everybody. David Schwab here. What a treat this week is. We have on the pod Doc Emmerich. Doc is the voice of the NHL on NBC. He has been doing radio and television and broadcasting for 46 years, and an Emmy Award winner, top of his craft. His voice, when you hear it, you'll know it instantly. This was a lot of fun. Uh, we talk about how his language skills have blossomed over the years. If, if you hear his voice and you know it, he is famous for unbelievable one-liners that just come out of nowhere. And how does he come up with those one-liners? And how did he have the skills from the very beginning? And I asked him a question after doing this for 46 years and being at the top of their craft. How do you keep learning? How do you get better? What would make you better? How do you study? I thought that was an interesting perspective. He goes back into memory lane and Miami and the time there in the late 60s and even professors he remembers and what he remembers walking around campus. We dig into why Miamians have had so much success, especially in hockey, and not just players in the NHL, but front office and broadcasters. There's several. Uh, John Walton, who we've had on the pod before, is with the Washington Capitals, and Bill Davidge, who was a professor of mine actually at Miami in the early 90s, has been with the Columbus Blue Jackets for quite some time. He also gives some tips for students coming out of Miami this week and heading into the real world. I hope you enjoy the pod. I did. I was fortunate in that I grew up in a family uh, where my mom and dad were both school teachers. Uh, my dad eventually became one of the rarities in the state of Indiana, and he was a band director who became a principal. Normally, you have to be a basketball coach to get those jobs. And my mom was a, was a home economics teacher and girls' physical education teacher who later became a guidance counselor. English was spoken well in our house, and I think through osmosis, I got some of that. I had some very good teachers uh, in the elementary and middle school range, and one of them named Una McClurg in grain five used to always tell us that any word that you use five times automatically becomes yours for life. And she taught us about building vocabulary. And, and so I guess that's probably part of the reason. And also one other thing, I think the announcers that I listened to, and maybe it was a product of the era that I grew up in, in the late 50s and early 60s, the announcers I listened to all used very good English. Um, I think, uh, you know, colloquial language in broadcasting sports hadn't really entered uh, sports broadcasting at that time. It was not formal English necessarily, but it was, uh, it was also English that was, that was very normal for broadcasters at that time. There was a different standard in terms of what you needed to be able to speak to get a broadcasting job. It's not so much that now, uh, but back then it was. So I think all of those factors kind of entered in. The people I listened to also used good English as well as my parents. Do you think part of that was the medium in radio of the need to be so descriptive with vocabulary or just a, a different requirement from what it was then to now? 
No, I think radio played a big part in it because the first seven years of my 46 years that I've been in broadcasting was almost exclusively radio. The four mm-hmm. years in the International League riding buses in Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, and out to Des Moines, Iowa, it was all radio. And then for three years in the American League based in Portland, Maine, with the exception of two or three very important games in the Maine Mariners' history, which were usually international games with traveling teams from Russia, uh, those were all radio as well. They weren't telecasts. And so I think with radio, and you talk to any longtime veterans of broadcasting that have done both, and they will often tell you, even though they may be earning their living in television, that radio is a lot more fun because you do get to paint the picture in radio. And in television, uh, you are responding to the pictures that people are seeing. It was once described to me as the difference in boxing of leading with punches or counterpunching. And I think that was probably the difference between radio and television. And so most people prefer radio, and I always liked it. And I think probably the be, being able to describe uh, was uh, was a skill that got better just simple, uh, simply through repetition in all those years of seven seasons of doing radio. And the one-liners that you throw out every night, just in this Blue Jackets Bruins, the, the one that stuck with me, it's two and a half inches wide, but to Blue Jackets fans, it feels like a utility pole outside. Where's that coming? Where's that come from? <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's, it, you know what that is, David? That's just more from years of doing it. It's yeah. somewhere over 3,600 games. And huh. you realize, you know, in your early years, you're so afraid of offending someone or, or uh, of trying anything unusual. And, and after a few years, you don't worry about it as much. And you realize that uh, not everyone can love you, but uh, you just do what is yourself. And those are expressions that I've heard goaltenders use, that some nights uh, the, the, the posts behind you look like utility poles, and other nights they're as thin as a string of spaghetti. Uh, you don't get any help from them whatsoever. And so that was why that one just came out of the blue last night. Uh, you know, when you see the puck is three inches wide and the goalposts are only about two and a half, but how many times, with the net being 24 square feet, how many times does it seem that the puck hits the post instead of the net behind? And, of course, there's a goaltender that's pretty bulky and pretty skilled standing in front of that 24 square feet of net. So that's another thing that makes it not only confusing but wonderful. It's it's a great sport, and I think part of the reason is the speed, but part of the reason is confusing things like how can it be so hard to put that disc into all that space? Well, it is. <laughs> And you referenced the 46 years of broadcasting work, and you're at the top of the craft and Emmy Award winner and all those great things. So how do you still learn and get better each year? Well, I think every day is a new experience when you go to practice, and the the players have taught me the game for 46 years, and there's still new things about the sport that you learn. And it sounds like a really nice thing for an old guy to say, that he continues to learn every day, but it's the truth. Uh, you go in and, and you talk to players and you sit next to them, and they will say something that you, in all those years you never thought about. Now, there was a play in a game in game four in Columbus where the puck went actually out of play into the mesh above the glass and kicked back in and was scored. 
There's no possible way in my memory bank that I've ever seen one of those happen, let alone to have it called a legal goal. But there it is, if you knew the rule book front and back, and it's now well over 100 pages in very small print, the general managers of the NHL teams came up with a way that if a puck actually hit the mesh and came back down and was passed by one player to another and scored, and all four striped shirts on the ice never saw it, it is not reviewable. And Hmm. even though all of us saw and were able to show through videotape and that the people in the Situation Room in Toronto who can actually overrule a lot of things... They are powerless to do a thing about it because it's in the rule book. I didn't know that. It's a provision in the rule book I had never seen until we were in the middle of the game last night and Columbus was awarded a goal after the puck had had left the playing surface. And you think if there's no mesh there, it's going to be in the fourth row of seats. So what is the logic in that? And the answer is there ain't any. But (laughs) I learned something yesterday. And earlier in the playoffs, I don't even I don't recall the player. You, you will, but there was a Miami University reference, either on a goal or a pass for one of the players. What's what's Miami mean to you? Well, Sean Corrali was the guy, okay. and and Rico okay. uh, Rico Blasi is so proud of him that he texted me after Sean scored the goal in Game Seven that made it three to one in a very important Boston win over Toronto that eventually they clinched and, and won game seven and clinched the series and moved on. And Sean had another important goal last night. I don't think Miami got into the description last night, but it sure <laughs> did in game seven. And what Miami means to me is that when you're, when you're balding and wear glasses and you're gray-haired and you remember the time when you weren't and when you were 22 and 23 years of age, and the telecommunications department um, just off of Spring Street in Oxford gave you wonderful opportunity for one year, 11 months in a master's program, to explore your passion as well as to teach the basic course in broadcasting to undergraduate students and to host a nightly TV sports show five days a week on what was then called Channel 14. When you got to do that, You got invaluable experience that you didn't have to pay for. And all of those things are what Miami means. I was given the opportunity by Stephen C. Hathaway, who was in charge of telecommunications that year, to do an independent study on the International Hockey League. He let me travel around, and of course it was on my own dime, but he let me travel around with telecommunications commitment to tape record on video, and you can imagine the equipment that was available in 1968, to tape record interviews with players and coaches in the IHL. He knew, as well as I did, that this is what I really wanted to do with my education, not teach other kids or not go off and, and settle in New York and maybe try to direct award-winning television shows. I wanted to be a hockey announcer since I was 14. And I was getting a wonderful opportunity, thanks to him, to do this feature. And I still have the audio recordings of the programs that that independent study helped me put together. What's more, by doing that nightly TV show, I got an excuse to jump in my Volkswagen Beetle, fill it with gasoline each day. And whenever the Dayton Gems played a home game, I got to go sit in the press box for free 
have a pretzel and a soft drink and listen to the reporters who covered the team and learn about the sport that way and talk to some of their players and coaches and administrative staff. I got an incredible education at Miami University, not only in broadcasting, but also in hockey, and I thank the university for that. Mm. We've, had, we've had John Walton on the pod uh, during the Caps run earlier last year, and I think Coach Davidge and, and his past in Blue Jackets, it's amazing how many Miamians uh, live in and around hockey and not just from the player Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of that came from the fact that the program was built up after I left. When I was there, the Miami Redskins, as they were called, were a club program that played at the Dixie Ice Bowl in Covington, Kentucky, which I am advised (laughs) by a man I talked to yesterday is still standing. Now, I'm not sure if it's three quarters enclosed as it was then, because I froze a lot of times standing next to the boards because there weren't seats at the Dixie Ice Bowl, watching Coach Gil Short, who was also the goaltender on the team, play and and play against teams like Denison and, you know, smaller college teams that had club squads. And was Miami dynamic? No, but they enjoyed playing. A guy named Don Martin was the best player on the team, and he had incredible skill compared to the other guys who were just guys that wanted to play a little hockey. But it changed a lot. Jack Vivian came in and spearheaded the program to build an arena. And and uh, the early years of, of the uh, Miami as a varsity program were exciting. And now so many guys have gone through there to the National Hockey League that it would make sense that a few hangers-on like John, and of course Bill Davidge was a player at Ohio State, that yep. John and myself would, would be hangers-on that would be broadcasting. And both of us have been blessed enough to not only – go to Miami, but also have Stanley Cup rings for our time in the NHL. And and this coming week, uh, there's 3,000, 4,000 students about to graduate Oxford and and leave into different cities around the world. What, what's the one or two tips you give to the, the 22-year-old that's about to enter the, the work world? Um. Two things, and they will sound maybe 50% crusty and 50% giving. The crusty part is this. Um, There's not one hand that's going to give you something just because you walked out of any school, including Noble Miami University, with a, a diploma. There's nothing that comes to you with you holding that in your hand. There has to be work effort that is put into it both before and also once you get out in this marketplace, despite the fact that in the last 50 years as a country, we have never had a lower unemployment rate than we have right now. There are still going to be more graduates than there are going to be jobs. And you have to make some sort of distinctive statement for yourself. And this will sound crusty too, but in a job where you have to work with people, It is a job in broadcasting that you cannot get hiding in your iPhone. You have to be looking people in the eye, shaking hands with them, and making some sort of statement by your personality that you are different than everyone else. The giving side, the 50% giving side, is that you do have a four-year education at a wonderful school, 
and you do have something to offer, but it is not a layup. You have to pick your way through a couple of tall defenders to get to the basket to put it in. It's not simple, but it sure is satisfying once you see it go through. And as you have three, there's some great points. The next, you've got six weeks ahead of a lot of hockey calling, some screaming, maybe some late-night overtime games. What's the food and drink that you're putting in your body every day to keep that, that voice alive? There is nothing that is better in my mind than peanut butter. <laughs> my mom always had peanut butter around and made sandwiches for us, and sometimes that was my favorite thing to have in my lunch bucket when I went to school. And, of course, I don't think kids pack lunches anymore. It's provided for them. But um, even now, when we have multiple overtime games, a spoon of peanut butter is given to me for quick energy if I want it. Most times I do because regardless of age, I have found that you do spend a lot of energy doing a game. You, your morning begins at practice at 10.30 for the home team and 11.30 for the visitor. I am not good at just curling up and taking a nap in the afternoon. I usually wind up drawing notes together and trying to do more to make the broadcast good that night. Uh, I'm not just saying that. That's it. I, I do spend time working on the show the night before and in the afternoon. Then the game begins at 7 or 8 o'clock. Sometimes it can go until after midnight in the playoffs with multiple overtimes. So the energy food for me is peanut butter, and the most valuable commodity I can possibly have is sleep. And people do tell you that water is a valuable resource for you to continue to hydrate yourself. I would love to say, do as I say and not as I do. I wind up on Diet Coke from the start of the game until the very end. Uh, It's caffeine for me. It's not water. It would be better for me if it were but I can't lie to you, it's not. And, and, and the next time you go back to Oxford, where is, in closing here, where is the first place on campus that you like to go and visit and see? Well, I lived in a, that one year in a mobile home at 6624 Hester Road, and there was a nice house there and very polite couple. And the, uh, the gentleman who, uh, who was my landlord ran a little sporting goods store out of his garage, and he sold fishing bait. <laughs> and occasionally legends like Tate's Locke, the great basketball coach, or Walter Alston, the legendary Los Angeles Brooklyn Dodgers manager, would stop by to buy bait so that they could go fishing in the spring or in, in, the, uh, in the fall after the baseball season was over. And I guess I would drive by there because I haven't been there in years to see if the house is still standing. They were older folks, and so I'm sure they're not with us anymore. But it was a great part of my experience there would would be to go home late at night after I'd been at the television station until we signed off the evening TV sports and news program, Al Manis and I, and uh, and get back home and uh, take my residence in that little mobile home out in back of their house. Occasionally I'd see the light on and occasionally they'd still be up and wave. But that will probably be one of the first spots because that was home for me for 11 months. How good is that? Thank you, Doc. That is a fun 15 minutes. That voice is just so great. How much do you love the peanut butter spoon from his lunch bucket or his lunch pail story? 
he really does a great job of, of sharing stories. You can understand why he is the best in the world at what he does. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please share with friends, family, and Miamians. See you at Skippers real soon.